that we can be together for a little while. We're going to be looking at some very serious things tonight that we really don't really know how to handle, just to be honest with you, most of us. I read a story recently that told of two farmers. They were very close neighbors. One of them was continually optimistic. He was seldom discouraged. He was a really a bright individual. The other one was just the opposite. He was grim and he was gloomy. He burdens were also so heavy for him and challenges he didn't like and all of that kind of thing, you know. You you can picture that kind of person. That happy opportunistic farmer would see the sun coming up and as he drove out on his tractor, he'd yell at the other farmer and said, look at that beautiful sun. The other farmer would reply over the roar of his tractor with a big frown on his face saying, it'll probably scorch the crops. Well, the, the, the optimistic neighbor again said one morning when it was starting to rain, he said, as he went out, he hollered at that particular one. He says, God's giving our corn a drink today. The other fellow, really, opti- really negative, he said, if it doesn't stop soon, it's going to flood and wash everything away. One day, the optimistic farmer decided that he's going to do something and put that pessimistic farmer to the test. He purchased a, one of the smartest bird dogs that Bunny could buy, and he trained him and made everything ready for him, and then he invited his neighbor to go duck hunting with him. And they went duck hunting and sat out there in the boat, patiently waiting on the ducks to fly over, and they did. And they both got their shotguns out and started shooting, and the, so several ducks fell in the water, and the optimistic farmer turned to the dog and said, get the ducks. Well, the dog jumped out up in the boat and, and got out of, the, out of the boat and walked on the water and picked up all the ducks, brought them in, and when he brought them back and loaded them in the boat, the optimistic said, fellow said, now what do you think about that? He said, well, your dog can't swim, can he? You know that as we think about this, I want you to think about something else. I want you to think about with what we've got on the board up there, and I really want us to have uh, another one, uh, uh, the next one, if I can figure out how to do it. Give me another slide if you can do that. <laughs> Mine, uh, it's on, but it's not. 
Okay. Here's a map. I want you to look on that map very carefully. I want you to see exactly what's taking place there. I want you to understand that as you come down that line to number three, that's the line crosses there, crosses the river, the Red Sea, and gets them into the Promised Land. The Israelites had the same pessimistic attitude as the farmer that I discussed has. They had walked through the Red Sea, the water piled up on either side of them, and all of them were escaped, did escape through that water safely, almost two million. You can imagine how long it would take for them to get through there. And they saw God's almighty hand behind them, not only in separating the water, but also in what happened after that. You remember the Egyptian army had decided they shouldn't be released from their work there in Egypt. And so they had come up to the place where the Israelites were. Fortunately, it was at night. The armies didn't fight at night, so they had, this, had the night to themselves. And that's when the Red Sea was parted. And, and the children of Israel could all go over that, that land to the other side of the sea on dry land how great it was that they could do just that. When they got on the other side, if you remember reading in the early part of our, our, our book, Exodus, that the Israelites began singing a song. That's chapter 14. They sang a song again in chapter 16, blessing God, thanking God for what he had done. But when they came out over the Red Sea, they walked, as you can tell from that map, they walked down that road for just a ways. I'll figure out sometime how to do this. They walked down into that wilderness of Elam, if you can see it there. Remember the wilderness of Sir up on the top of it. We'll be mentioning that in a few moments. But as they walk down this, I, I, I want you to remember what's going on in their life. For 430 years, they have been in the slavery of Egypt. It hasn't been a pleasant thing. And now... God with his mighty hand has brought them out and, and brought the, after 430 years there with joy the Israelites praised God and sang that song just three days into the desert of Shur. Now they've walked. And just three days after all of that goodness 
Can you imagine the ten plagues that God brought on the nation of Egypt? They knew that power of God. They could see God dividing the sea for them. They knew what happened to the Egyptian army. Now they're free, and now they can walk, and they walk, they walk three days in, in that area. And then they began complaining. They were out of water. I don't know how they carried their water at that time, probably in animal skins that were made into some kind of containers that would hold the water. But I don't know exactly how they contained it, but when we characterize the Israelites, we need to realize the situation they've been in. They've gone three days now without fresh water. Most likely, the supply of water that they had in the kinds of containers that they had, most likely it was gone. What are they going to do now? They found the source of water at Mara. You find Mara down there with number four by it, and you can tell that's about a three-day journey or something like that from where they crossed the Red Sea. And we understand that to be the case. It was there that we understood the fact that the children of Israel had the opportunity to now get water. But the water, when they tested it, was bitter. Some translations have made it briny or salty. Something they couldn't drink. Tremendous disappointment to them. These people were still very young spiritually. God was patient with them, respecting their weakness and helping them to grow in faith. And when they continued to gripe and grumbled, he punished them. Griping, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, in the lives of Christians is a sin. It's destructive to the cause of Christ. Damaging to our influence for good in this world. I wonder about it. How often do you complain about your job? Or how often do you complain about your family situation? Or how often do you complain about what little money you have or how high your expenses are? Or how often do you complain about the, the idea of, uh, of what your life is right now? You see, these all fall, fall under the same category of grumbling and murmuring. And What is your wilderness, wilderness sir? Children of Israel were there. Three day, a three-day trip into the desert can teach us what causes grumbling, but how can, how can it be put out of our lives? You know, we, we ought to be able to know that. I'm going to need some help of our... No, one more. Okay, we fail, to, we, we, we fail often to see God's goodness, don't we? In only three days, the Israelites had forgotten God's deliverance. They should never have forgotten 
what God is saying. They have ne should never have forgotten the ten plagues of Egypt. They should never have forgotten uh, the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea. But you know, human beings are, are forgetful. You got me where I can do it, huh? Good. Okay. You know, if Israel had remembered what God had done for them, don't you think they would have said, prayed, Lord, you rescued us out of the hands of the Egyptians and now we desperately need water, please help us? With that prayer, Israel could have gotten water without grieving, without being concerned about it. In times of difficulty, one way we can get God's help is to remember all of our blessings. Are any of us so wretched as to be without God's blessings? I think not. If you're disappointed with your children, remember the blessing of having them. Many long to have children of their own, but cannot. If you're tempted to grumble about your job, remember those who don't have jobs and will like to have yours. If you've lost a loved one, loved one, remember the good years you had with them. You're being blessed by that individual that you've just missed. If you cannot think of even one good thing Remember what Paul says, in Psalm, what writer Psalm says in Psalms chapter 40, verses 2 through 5. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and with trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, are your wonderful works which you've done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. There's so many of them that you can't do it in order. He says, I would declare and speak of them they're more than can be numbered. What the psalmist says is what every one of us really knows in thinking. You cannot begin to enumerate the blessings that you have. Now let's just be, be honest about it. Now we find blessings that we have from time to time and it's good to not acknowledge them. But more than you can imagine more than you can remember. Remembrance is a powerful tool for encouragement. I love the Lord's Supper for that reason. It's a time when we can come together and it's a time when we are encouraging one another to remember what Christ has done for us. We can also remember and gain encouragement from fellow Christians where Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. 
Do we thank our God on every remembrance of him? Then two, have you failed to ask God? Children of Israel hadn't asked God. They had made a three-day journey, and as far as we know, they did not ask God anything about their water. They complained to Moses and the rest of them, but that was not what God wanted them to do. The opposite of complaint is prayer. If they really prayed in faith, or if we really prayed uh, in faith, we'd have no complaints. We'd have nothing that we could use to be upset with and so torn as they were. The opposite of prayer is complaint. Keep that in mind. I'll probably say it again several times before we're through. Because we begin complaining with God. Then the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. What are you asking for us to do, Paul? Asking us to pray for the needs that we have in our lives. The blessings that God gives us over and over and over and over again. Is there anything that weighs down your heart that you need to be praying about? When something begins to weigh down your heart and your life, pray to God about it. James chapter 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your, in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, if the children of Israel had only asked for water. If they had only asked for God to provide water for them, he would have done so. They would not have felt the need to complain had they done that. But no, notice to whom they, did they complain. Unfortunately, one of the things church members seems to do best is grumble. You think about it for a moment. The preacher, the teachers, the leaders, other members complain and criticize. They're not doing enough of this. They're, they're, they're doing too much of that and so forth and so on. Instead of praying and doing something, we complain and criticize those who are doing something. That ought not be, be the case. We ought not to do that. The Israelites turned on Moses after he had raised his staff over the Red Sea and divided the waters. After he had calmed the people with the knowledge that the Lord was watching over them. And later they had complained among themselves and blamed Moses and Aaron for bringing them into the wilderness to die. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. 
Then two, I want you to understand, they did nothing. Instead of digging wells, they came for water. Instead of digging wells for water, they griped. Instead of praying, they complained. They wanted their needs met, but they did not want to do anything about them. With the manpower available, they could have dug several wells. Some 600,000 men of fighting age. They could have dug several wells, don't you think? Instead, they griped. Some in the church would rather gripe about what is not getting done than to do anything about it. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not naming individuals, but I'm saying that all of us might be in this situation from time to time. I know know myself, I've complained about people not doing the things that they ought to be doing. Well, am I doing the things that I ought to be doing? Probably not. Some in the church would rather, rather gripe about what's not getting done than to do anything about it. They'd rather blame others than take responsibility for themselves. Some have good ideas, but would rather grumble, grumble and take, than to take action. If God has given you a good idea about some ministry that needs to be done, do it. You do it. Jay Utley, a preacher, tells about a Christian woman in a congregation where he preached who was disturbed by the rising abortion rate in Los Angeles. Instead of waiting for others to act, she prayed about it and decided to do something about it. She went to the abortion clinics stood outside in the line for hours with the expectant mothers. She persuaded some of them not to abort their child. But this posed a new problem. What to do with some of these women who could not return to their house? As this ministry grew, the church became involved and built a home for the unwed mothers. This woman didn't have to call a meeting. She just saw a need and sought to meet it with God's help. Why can't we all do that? Some of our best ideas are never put to work because we wait for others to make them work. Ministries that could help the youth, the poor, the aged, the widows, the lonely, and the lost are not necessarily being carried out because people are waiting for somebody else to do the work. Meanwhile, the complaining continues. If God has put an idea into your heart, what are you waiting for? He may want you to do it. And then to... Some may have failed to realize that adversity may come. Israel could not conceive of more adversity coming since God was now with them. They'd been, their uh, nation had been in slavery for 430 years. 
They had been in severe bondage over the last few years. And we saw as, the, as God had come down and brought five, uh, ten different plagues upon the nation of Egypt, that they even suffered more because of what Egypt was undergoing. And even then, we need to realize that God has never promised us that we'll never have trouble. There are some times when He allows us to find things that are wrong in order to teach us they're tests that God gives. Don't you imagine that he might have tested the nation of Israel with that water that was briny or bitter or what, however it was? Not drinkable. Was that a test for them? It must have been because they prayed to God through Moses and he told him to take a certain limb and put it in that water and it did and it was the water for them. And they could have, now remember they were three days away from the Red Sea when they realized we're out of water. If they had known just a little ways beyond them was an oasis in the desert water, plenty of uh, palm trees, plenty of water for them to drink and they could be under the shade of the palm trees. You see, when we think about what's going on, do you remember the story of Job? Job's story was, is so important for us. He was person, yeah, God's promised us we might have trouble. He suffered perhaps more than any other man other than Jesus. He lost his possessions, he lost his business, he lost his children, he was bankrupt, he was bereaved, he was covered in, in boils. His wife even came to him and said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. He said to her, you speak like one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job's God was not some being sitting on the edge of heaven just dropping things down on the earth. That's not the God of heaven. The sovereign God of heaven works to strengthen us and to bring glory to himself. And, and not, that means that things that we experience, he, he, wants, he wants the works to strengthen us, to bring glory to himself, not to us. That sometimes means that we experience not only good, but adversity as well. And then they fail to glorify God. Think for a moment what's happened. Israel could not accept the difficulty of the hand of God. The people had become spoiled with his goodness. Everything had been provided for them in the face of difficulty. 
And now they murmured and complained. If they had just looked to God in faith, they would have seen that he was doing something to bring glory to heaven and to himself. Our major goal as Christians is not to be happy and satisfied. It's to glorify God. Hopefully, we'll be the kind of person that to glorify God makes us happy and that we can rejoice over it. You see, that statement contradicts our Western culture. Really, it does. In fact, many teach that Christians should be the most prosperous people on earth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Do you remember reading the last parts of the New Testament of the first century Christians? They were persecuted. They were poor. They were oppressed by friends and foes alike. Does this mean God was against them? No, of course not. They were bringing glory to their God. We're reminded of that. But is that what we need to be doing? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. You see, God's able to do amazing things with us when we're willing to do what God has commanded us to do. As each one of us has received a gift, I don't know what your specific gift is. I struggle enough trying to determine what mine is. I don't know for sure. I certainly didn't know as a boy growing up what it was going to be. Didn't start preaching until after we were married and had two children. But only, that was only in 1960 when I began. I know a lot of things that have happened in my life. Most of it for good. You see, we've, we've had a gift to, 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 to minister. And we're to minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, I want you to, I want you to think again. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Does that mean I need to be careful of what I say? Of course. If anyone ministers, serves another. Let him do it with the ability which God supplies. You know, all of us can't do all things. Every one of us has some particular gifts that we can do. And we need to serve God in that capacity. You say that 
we have that which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It isn't glorifying us, it's glorifying God. We're here for that purpose. If you're a Christian, you're in the realm of, of testing. The world does not understand. The tests are shaping you on God's anvil making you more like him so you can bring glory to him. Before Israel could be a fit nation, they had to learn to trust him. I'm convinced that at times God gives us troubles so that we have to learn to trust him as well. Before Israel could be a fit nation, before we can be fit for God's work, for God's purposes, we need to learn to trust him. This generation of Israelites was never to learn that lesson. I wonder if people today who never will learn that lesson. They were griping. They were grumbling. They were pessimistic people who rarely trusted God. God reduced them time after time. But they still did not see or understand. This time too he would rescue them. Just a few hours away from Elam, where they could find that oasis. Twelve springs of water, 70 palm trees under which they could rest. For a few weeks, Israel did not complain. But do you know what happened next? They now have this beautiful oasis with the water and the shade trees. And their prayers for water has been answered. What next? They were hungry. They were hungry. Complaints show God how little we trust Him. Gripes and complaints display our forgetfulness and of God's goodness to us and our lack of prayerfulness and our do-nothing spirit. God wants desperately for his children to trust him, to look to him, to serve him. He still speaks, seeks people who will obey him and people who will submit their lives to his plan, people who will submit their lives to, to what he wants done and cease to live for themselves, people who will receive Christ in trusting faith and be baptized in water as he commanded. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Then too, one of the things that we must look at closely is patience. That's found in the 16th chapter of Exodus. In verse 1 of that chapter, we read they journeyed from Elam, which is the place where they found the bad water. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, a month and a half now, after they deserted from the land of Egypt. But they're far, far, far from the promised land, Canaan. Standing between 
this land and them was a huge desert. It had been a month and a half since God's marvelous miracles had, had released them from Egyptian slavery. God had sweetened the water for them to drink at Marah. And an oasis of Elam with 12 springs and 70 palm trees had preserved them. But they were quick to complain in spite of the evidence that God's caring for them. In their 45 days of freedom from bondage, they had complained on three different occasions already. They had complained at the Red Sea. They had complained at Marah. And now in the desert of sin, they had murmured because they were hungry. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, <clears throat> when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we were ate bread till the full, and for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verses 2 and 3. You know, I, th I think of that, what, which they're doing at this present time. And think of how, how awful the, the, the grumbling, complaining, griping is. But God's patient. Aren't you amazed that, that God did not destroy these people right then? I am. It seems to me that the first thing he ought to do is wipe them out. But he didn't. You see, my own impatience calls for righteous God to vindicate himself and vanish such grumblers and grippers that had seen more miracles than any other people in history. They should have believed. God could have rained fire down fiery hail from heaven. He could have given them what they asked for. But uh, he could have sent them back to Egypt, you know. That's what they asked for. But instead of destroying these complainers, God fed them by sending manna and quails. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. Why did he set a quota, amount that you could gather every day? It was a test for them. Think about that for a moment. That'll be, that, that don't, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And do you remember what they did? Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against, uh, against the, the Lord. But what are we 
that you complain against us. Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning, in the morning bread to the full, and the Lord, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, Moses and Aaron, but against God, against the Lord. He gave careful instructions about this bread that came down every morning, like dew lighting upon the grass and the ground. And they could go out and gather a certain amount for that day's need, and they could pre prepare that much as bread and eat that. Manna means what is it? Nobody knew that kind of bread. Nobody knew that kind of thing. He says, gather only what you need for one day, except on Friday, and then get two days' worth. So you'll not go to work on the Sabbath. Some would even get two days' worth on other days, and it would spoil. You know, the next morning it would be filled with worms and was rotten. They couldn't use it. Some went out looking for manna on the Sabbath. Moses got upset in verses 16 to 20, but God was patient and forgiving with them. And as we think about it, God's patience is needed. We too need God's forgiveness in our lives. As we blunder in our dealings with others, what a fearsome thing it would be if God was impatient with us. How long could any of us stand if it were not for God's patience? This God of patience lives in us and strives to help us preserve our marriages in the church or in the relationship or in the inner walk with, with Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation, according to Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, and Psalms 103, verse 8. God's patience. Over and over in the Old Testament, it was that in the passages that we've just noted, was mentioned. God's patience limited toward those who rebel and maintain opposed to his will. But he rebounds in forgiveness and patience with those who love him. Jesus, God with us, was extremely patient with his disciples. Three and a half years, Jesus struggled to share his mission with these 12 men. They often went astray. Church leaders, deacons, elders, ministers need to hear this. How did Christ put up with these men? Sometimes they were unbelieving, conceited, hateful, ambitious. Peter often spoke without thinking. Why did Jesus refer to Simon as Peter or a rock? when he more closely resembled pudding 
Peter got out of the boat and walked on the Sea of Galilee toward Jesus. But this same Peter began to see when he looked at the storm. When James and John's mother came to Jesus to seek a favor, Jesus listened, may my two sons become your prime ministers, she requested. They must have been closely by when their mother said this because Jesus asked, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they, you, you, you don't understand, he said, uh, you're not able to do that. The disciples then began to quarrel. Jesus began to explain that they would not organize like some pagan group with a boss. Their group would be berated only by Jerusalem in trial. Knowing only these things, some people who were singing his praises would soon be calling for his crucifixion. When a Samaritan city would not listen to his preaching. James and John were called in the scriptures sons of thunder, probably because of their explosive tempers, suggested that Jesus destroy the city with fire from heaven. Thomas was always saying, show me. When Jesus had told them he would prepare a place for them in heaven, Thomas wanted details, saying, how do we know the way? John chapter 14 and verse 5. Jesus has left church leaders to be the perfect models of patience. To teach gently and never discount people's feelings. It's easy to see, say of other people that if they had a proper relationship with God, they wouldn't have these problems. Church leaders often tend to the needs of the vocal members and to the exclusion of others. Disillusioned leaders want to ignore complainers. It's easy to ignore the emotionally weak and spiritually needy, but they need attention and encouragement. It is not enough to say that they should be stronger. This does not excuse us from shepherding these people personally and patiently. Listen to Paul. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, verse 14. It's easy to give up on people. We all have, a, have an idea how things should be. Had we been there in control, it would have been easy for us to give up on the Israelites, would it not? With the faint, all the things they did. We have an idea of how things should be and other, think others should conform to our ways of thinking about the church, the home, the world. When others do not see things as we do, it's easy to get angry, to give up on them. There's much over-expectation of people as far as the church is concerned. We expect fellow Christians to be without fault, to have no noticeable weaknesses, if a brother or sister has a persistent difficulty with lack of commitment or self-control, we tend to give up. They may be struggling with a moral problem. They may be, prob uh, be family problems, but let him who is without sin among us be the first to cast the stone. 
We believe that we have no significant weakness in our life, no sin that we struggle with, then we've succumbed to the most dangerous sin of all, pride. Oh, how important it is that we think for a moment of God's patience to us. We must recognize that patience very quickly. Let's look at some things here. Paul, Paul in Ephesians tell us, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as God, as, in, as Christ loves, also loved us and get, had given himself for us. An offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians 4. 29 through chapter 5, verse 2. Are we imitators of God? Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our righteous Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you for the great blessings that you've given us. We're mindful of the fact that we cannot even begin to enumerate the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. We know that all those blessings came from you and as a gift of yours. Be with us, Father, as we learn from the passages that we've just noted tonight that we need to be dedicated, committed fully to you. Help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are snack stuff prepared for you down stairs, so if you want to go down there and find something to eat in the few minutes that we're waiting for the others.